invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And if you're using one of the Bibles here, it should be on page 974. 974. As you turn there, just a quick little recap of where we've been in Galatians. Uh, The Apostle Paul in this middle section, this very meaty section, um, begins to open up for us the riches of the gospel that he was sent by God to proclaim. Uh, The Apostle Paul opens it up in terms of the fact that Jesus Christ is the one in whom the promise of God given long ago to Abraham has been fulfilled. And so those who are blessed with Abraham are those who have received and, and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith alone, Paul has been hammering time and time again, faith alone in Jesus Christ is what defines the people of God. Not outward marks upon their bodies, uh, not certain calendar days that they keep, not certain foods that they avoid, but what defines them are not these external things, but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the defining mark of the people of God. And that the proof of this is in the fact that Jesus Christ has died. The cross of Jesus Christ is a bold exclamation point on God's statement that human efforts and human striving can never save you. Otherwise, God's Son would not have been hanging there dead on a cross. Right? The cross of Jesus Christ, Paul says, is the loudest statement that God could give that you cannot save yourself and you cannot find salvation in earthly saviors or so-called saviors. And not only the, the cross of Jesus Christ makes a, a bold claim for us, uh, but also the resurrection of Jesus Christ now means that the people of God are citizens of the heavenly city, the city above, and therefore find freedom from these external restraints that the people of God once endured under Moses for a time, but temporary. Uh, But now we live in the freedom that Christ has won for us in his resurrection. He has delivered us from the present evil age, and he has delivered us into a new creation. Uh, The cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, these are the bedrock truths and realities that undergirds Paul's whole argument in Galatians, right? So here in in chapter 5, Paul's now going to turn in a much more strong polemical sense where he's going to be refuting false teachers and showing how their teaching uh, as they are trying to supplement the gospel with giving these, you know, requiring circumcision, requiring feast days, He's going to go on to say that by requiring these things, they are separating you from the only one who can save you, Christ himself. And so now Paul's going to be engaging with these false teachers, providing warnings, uh, but also again holding up for us that truth that we are to be in union with Christ if we are to find uh, salvation. So Galatians chapter 5, we'll read verses 2 through 12. It says, The holy and inspired word of God. Look... I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, 
but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Let's pray that God might bless this word to us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we ask that as you speak to us, you might open up our ears, that we might hear your truth and your voice, and that by this word we might have confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, that our faith might be strengthened, our hope of righteousness might be strengthened as well, and that in all these ways the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified. We pray in his name. Amen. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, After a somewhat lengthy theological argument that the Apostle Paul has been making, namely, again, that Christ is the promised seed offspring of Abraham in whom the blessing to the nations is now going out, after that long theological argument, now the Apostle Paul, in a sense, draws that proverbial line in the sand, just like David before Goliath, uh, just like Caleb before the Anakim, just like Esther before King Xerxes, just like Michael before the Prince of Persia, uh, just like the apostles before the Sanhedrin, right? The line has been drawn, and Paul stands his ground for God's glory and for the preservation of the good news of the gospel. Right? The line has been drawn, Paul is saying here. And the question becomes, what is that line? And even for the Christian life, right, we, we recognize, the, um, I was going to say the Apostle Paul, but Pastor Paul um, will often speak about, and as many Reformed uh, pastors will, myself included, of the antithesis, right? There's this basic divide. There is a line drawn that God has placed enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the, and the question is, what is that line? That, that Paul himself is saying, is, is saying that I will stand here and will not move. That I, I will stand here and I will not give an inch. As Christians, we can often draw the wrong line um, where we want to fight and where we want to hold up, um, hold ourselves up and where we don't want to cross, right? We can draw the wrong line. Not to go into all the details there, but the question here is, well, what line does the Apostle Paul draw in the sand that divides here? that says no to one thing and yes to another. Remember how the whole letter opened up, right? The Apostle Paul began by saying, introducing himself, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, right? Throughout Galatians, we've seen there needs to be a willingness to say no, not just a willingness to accept anything and everything, but a willingness to say no, right? That belongs to us and must be true of us as Christians to say no with the Apostle Paul. But again, the question is, what is the line that the Apostle Paul, Paul draws by which he says, if you are on the other side, it is a no. On this side, it is a yes. What is the Apostle Paul, uh, what kind of line does he draw? Well, as I'm thinking about this, I'm reminded of the words that Simeon says uh, when the Christ, as a baby, is presented to him in the temple. Notice what Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 34 says. 
Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You see, the line that the Apostle Paul drew is the line that God himself had declared regarding uh, this child through Simeon, that this child the Christ would be for the rising and for the falling. The line that the Apostle Paul draws in the sand here is Christ himself and the truth of his cross and his resurrection and the sufficiency of them to save his people. Where that is compromised, where that is being questioned, where that is being undermined or attacked, the Apostle Paul, with all of his strength, will fight against it. That is the good fight of faith that he, is, that he is waging. It's this same fight that is called to us as the church of God in Jude, verse 3, um, the letter to Jude, says, Beloved, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What is that faith? What is the content of that faith but Christ, crucified and risen from the dead to save his people from their sins? And it's on that point that the Apostle Paul will not give a single inch. It's what is defining, energizing his language here and his polemic against these false teachers who themselves had creeped into the church and said, yes, Christ is nice, and yes, Christ is a good start, but you need additional things. And as we're going to go on to see, the Apostle Paul says that to add anything to Christ is on the one hand to dishonor the sufficiency of his work, and secondly, it leads not to more, but to less. In fact, it leads to nothing. It's all or nothing for the Apostle Paul. Either it is Christ or nothing. That is the basic divide that the Apostle Paul is working for here. And again, this is what he's been uh, hoping for us to see as he's been writing to the Galatians, right? It's Christ who has delivered us from the present evil age. It's Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. It's Christ who is the promised offspring of Abraham who brings blessing to the nations. None other. And therefore, this is the line that the Apostle Paul draws for us. And so, everything Paul says in this passage here, in Galatians chapter 5, Everything hinges on Christ. Everything is said in reference to Christ. Everything is said with his eye towards the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just a personal vendetta. It's not just Paul feels slighted by these false teachers, right? It's not as if just Paul just likes to make arguments. Paul's strong language is because the gospel of Jesus Christ is under attack. And what is being promoted by these false teachers is not supplementary, but ultimately contradictory and dangerous and an entirely different religion. J. Gresham Machen, many of you know that name, uh, had said this regarding uh, this passage in Galatians. He said, Do not be deceived. Circumcision, as the Judaizers advocated it, was no innocent thing. We'll talk about why it wasn't. It means the acceptance of a law religion. 
The acceptance of a different religion on which the basis of my relationship to God is not faith in Jesus Christ, but my obedience and my works, what I do. Machen goes on to say, you must choose either the law or grace. You cannot have both, right? There is that basic divide. Herman Ritterboss, another commentator on this, had said and boiled it down to this, saying, the sufficiency of Christ's work is what is being challenged. Christ is all or nothing for you. Christ is all or he's nothing for you. He does not serve in a part, in a part at being part of what you need or providing a, a, a percentage of your salvation. No, Christ is all or he is nothing for you. And so the Apostle Paul has drawn this line. And so as we think about this passage, I want to think about uh, three things. Again, everything in relation to Christ. First, cut off from Christ, a warning. Secondly, communion with Christ. And then third, cut off by Christ. So cut off from Christ, communion with Christ, and cut off by Christ. And before jumping into our first point, <clears throat> you have to keep in mind that the Apostle Paul um, actually uses a lot of irony and puns uh, throughout this section. In many ways, um, he wants us to in some sense, see the silliness and the foolishness of what is being promoted here. And so he uses this pun on the word to cut off, which if you understand what circumcision is, then you can understand why the Apostle Paul is using this kind of pun. All over and over again, he's talking about what is being cut. Uh, notice, for example, right? he says um, that those who accept circumcision, right, the cutting off of the foreskin, verse 4 says... If you accept that, you are severed or cut off from Christ. He goes on to say that you were running, verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you? Um, you could literally understand this phrase here as who cut in line in front of you, right? You're running this race and somebody cut into the race to deter you and to keep you from finishing. And so on uh, from there. Verse 12 as well, he goes on to say in um, somewhat stark terms, and we'll explain why he says this, but he says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Right now there's something being cut off there as well. And so there's a lot going on here in terms of uh, the Apostle Paul using puns that we might see the silliness. Now we'll explain that last one when we get to it in a moment. I'll keep you on the edge. But uh, the Apostle Paul wants us again to see uh, the silliness and the foolishness of it. I think it was Shakespeare who had said, uh, jests oft do prove prophets, um, and often being able to tell a joke and being able to see the irony in a situation helps us to rather see the truth and see what is uh, reality. So just keep that in mind as we go through uh, this, uh, these verses here. But first, we want to jump into our first point, and that is Paul's warning of being cut off from Christ in verses 2 and 4. Verses 2 and 4. Just look again at those verses with me. The Apostle Paul says, look, <coughs> or pay attention, uh, take note, right? So he's trying to get our attention. I, Paul, right? So 
the language here is weighty, right? He, he's in a sense throwing his name out there. I, Paul, right, the one who's writing to you, the apostle sent not from man but from God, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, right, if you put yourself under this obligation to be circumcised, Christ will be of no advantage to you or no benefit to you. And that, again, would have been very um, stark and, and, and hard for them to hear. Again, the false teachers weren't saying that Christ wasn't good enough or, or Christ wasn't good, but they were saying that you could have the advantage and benefit of Christ plus more. And the Apostle Paul is saying that if you add circumcision to this, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed, separated, cut off, alienated from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now again, notice this point. It's so important for us to understand what Paul is getting at here. Everything he says is in reference to Christ. Christ will be of no advantage to you. And you are severed from Christ. Right? Everything has to be revolves around Christ and his sufficiency. And one of the most helpful statements we get, um, I think, confessional statements regarding the sufficiency of Christ. Um, is found in the Belgian Confession, Article 22. You could turn there if you'd like. You're welcome to grab your, uh, the hymnal next to you, or you can listen carefully. But again, what's in question here, why the Apostle Paul is dealing with what seems odd regarding this rite of circumcision, is the, su- the sufficiency of Christ. So Belgian Confession, Article 22, and if you are turning there, it's on page eight, 862. gives us a very helpful confessional statement reflecting the truths of Scripture regarding the sufficiency of Christ, what's at stake, what's being challenged here by these false teachers. It says this, and listen carefully. We believe that for us to acquire the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts a true faith And what does faith do? That embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits and makes him its own and no longer looks for anything apart from him. For it must necessarily follow that either all that is required for our salvation is not in Christ or if all is in him, that he who has Christ by faith has his salvation entirely Therefore, to say that Christ is not enough, but something else is needed, whether it's circumcision or whether it's any other um, requirement that we might put upon ourselves or upon other people, right? To say anything else is needed as well is a most enormous blasphemy against God. For it then would follow that Jesus Christ is only half a Savior, And therefore, we justly say with Paul that we are justified by faith alone or by faith apart from works. However, we do not mean properly speaking that it is faith itself that justifies us. For faith is only the instrument by which we embrace Christ, our righteousness. 
But Jesus Christ is our righteousness, crediting to us all his merits and all his holy works he has done for us and in our place. And faith is the instrument that keeps us in communion with him and with all his benefits. When those benefits are made ours, they are more than enough to absolve us of our sins. Right, again, a very helpful um, confessional statement that we're not going to you know, open up completely here, but just to keep in mind this idea. Right? Christ, the Apostle Paul has been telling us, is one in whom all the benefits of salvation are found. Christ is the one in whom glory is found. Christ is the one in whom deliverance is found. Freedom is found. And he is more than sufficient. More than enough. Now you have the false teachers coming along and promoting this idea that we actually can get more by offering up to God works of obedience, works of righteousness, or whatever else it might be. As he says there, you who would be justified by the law, you who would define your right standing before God on the basis of what you have done and your performance. The Apostle Paul is saying that for you to accept that is for you, again, to to see Christ as insufficient and therefore not to have Christ at all. The irony is that you're not supplementing Christ, but in fact, by pursuing this, you are being severed or cut off from Christ. Christ. And so the same warning, in a sense, uh, comes out to the church today. Now, most of us, all of us, I'm assuming, are not here tempted to think, well, my, right, my relationship with God would be better uh, if we got circumcised or whatever it might be, right? In many ways, the truth of what the Apostle Paul fought for has taken root in the consciousness of the church. We're not really tempted to go back to the Mosaic Covenant and to the external marks of the covenant. But this idea that we might be justified by law, whether it's not by circumcision or any other right or, <clears throat> or thing we might put forward, is a continual temptation that we need to fight against. And we fight uh, that temptation by looking to Christ and being reminded that he is sufficient, that his cross truly paid for all of my sins, there is nothing left, and that his resurrection has brought about my just justification, that I am right with God in Christ. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, again, if you begin pursuing this, you are pursuing a different religion, a different way of relating to God. And you are severed from the only source of salvation. You are cut off from the Savior himself, Christ. And so the Apostle Paul issues uh, this warning to the church. And he does so again on the basis of the sufficiency of what Christ has done for us. And so that's our first point that we want to uh, think about here. uh, Being cut off from Christ. But secondly... The Apostle Paul now moves into our communion with Christ. Now he gives a positive statement, right? So first he opened with a negative, but now he gives something that's positive and in many ways beautiful. Uh, um, Opening up and explaining our hope and who we are in Christ. Notice what he says in verse 5. 
He says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. See, the Apostle Paul is saying that those of us who look to Christ alone, those of us who put our faith in Christ and believe in him and seek no other outside of him, We are not in a depleted, desperate state. But rather, we are those who have an eager hope. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That is what defines the people of God. That's what defines you. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, we eagerly wait. It's not a matter of just waiting, but, but of eagerly waiting. Because there's, there's confidence, there's assurance of what lies ahead of me on the basis of what Christ has done for me. I look forward and I wait. And the Apostle Paul uses that word wait, I think, very, uh, in a very significant way. He speaks of waiting because it's that, you know, what do you, why would you wait? Well, you wait to, typically to receive something. You wait because something is on its way or you're on its way to it. It's yours, and that's why you can eagerly wait for it, not anxiously waiting for it, not speculating, is, is it mine, is it not mine, right? But, but there is a hope of righteousness that, that the Christian eagerly waits for, not trusting in our own works, but because we've trusted in Jesus Christ who has secured it for us. You might say, well, what is that hope of Righteousness that the Apostle Paul says we're eagerly waiting for, right? We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, commentators have taken this in a number of different ways. Uh, but what it seems to have in mind is the whole complex of salvation that awaits us. Right, right, that entrance into the gates of righteousness, the entrance into the kingdom of God that is ours. The Apostle uh, Peter, rather, in 2 Peter, tells us that as we strive and as we wait, those those things go together in the Christian life, that we will one day be received, richly welcomed, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our eager expectation as the people of God. And that is what faith does, and that is what the Spirit does in our lives. And so, whereas... Those who would seek to supplement Christ are severed from Christ and have no hope. Those who look to Christ alone, by faith alone, right, we can have great hope and eagerly expect what is to be ours. That when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead, we do not need to question and wonder, well, what verdict will be pronounced, will be pronounced, will be pronounced for me? Uh, What what will God say of me before his throne? If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you have the hope of righteousness. The verdict will be not guilty. The verdict will be, this is my son. The verdict will be, come, enter into the joy of your master. Come and, and enjoy what Christ has won and obtained for you. This is our hope in Jesus Christ. And of course, we hope for what we do not yet see. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says that it's 
through the Spirit by faith. Faith, trusting what God has said, trusting his word, and trusting in his Son, and by the Spirit, whom he has poured out in our hearts, testifying that we are his children, and testifying to the hope that we have in him. Right, so the Apostle Paul then is, is, is wanting us to, to conceive of our whole selves and our whole identity and our whole futures in light of being in union with Christ, in light of our faith in Jesus Christ. For it's in him that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Right, Paul, the Apostle Paul is saying this whole thing of being circumcised or uncircumcised, whether one is more righteous than the other. He said none of that matters in Christ. These distinctions that we often can draw, none of that matters in Christ. But what matters is faith working through love, right? Now, the Apostle Paul is going to go on to say, right, this faith that grabs hold of Christ to be justified, this faith that embraces Christ and his righteousness, is not an empty faith, but it's a faith that works itself out and expresses itself in love. And the irony is that love is actually the fulfillment of the law. If you kind of get the whole picture here, you have those promoting the law, 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 as the way of obedience and the way of being right with God, and they need to pursue the law. And yet Paul's saying, if you do so, you're separated from Christ. But if you believe in Christ by faith to be justified, well, now that same faith works itself out in love. And love is the fulfillment of God's law, as he's going to go on to say in chapter 6. But we'll say more about that um, when we get uh, to uh, those later verses. But it's faith working through love. And you might say, well... How could faith do anything otherwise, right? If faith embraces Christ, if faith brings me into union with Christ, if faith says that my life is hidden with Christ, well then my life is going to then begin to express itself in in Christ-likeness, which is summarized in love. Not as a law by which I made right with God, but as an expression of having been united to Christ. Those are the things that flow uh, from faith. And so that is the irony that the Apostle Paul is uh, dealing with here. Those who would seek to be justified by the law are cursed and separated from Christ. Those who apart from the law but by faith alone trust in Christ then return to fulfill the law in its rightful uh, usage. This is uh, what the Apostle Paul holds out uh, for us. And so we've seen that we are the warning of Paul being cut off from Christ. Uh, We've seen Paul's positive statement, communion with Christ, and and the hope of, of righteousness that we eagerly expect as the people of God. And then thirdly, Paul issues a warning to the false teachers where he speaks of them being cut off by Christ. And these come in verses 7 uh, through 12. 7 through 12. Notice the Apostle Paul gives these kind of quick little statements here. uh, Kind of a, a shotgun, rapid spray of statements. He says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. 
a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. <clears throat> so here, uh, the apostle is speaking uh, first to the Galatians and reminding them that they had been running well, right? This race that was set before them. And, and these false teachers had come in, uh, not boosting them and helping them and, and causing them to continue forward, but it's a, to cut in front of them and now to deter them from finishing uh, their race. And the Apostle Paul is saying that their teaching that they're giving you, and he kind of mixes metaphors here, is not just them cutting you off in a race, but it's like leaven that leavens a whole lump, right? If you put the leaven in the, I guess, yeast, you can ask Joanna these questions. I have no idea what I'm talking about, um, at least with the bread. Hopefully everything else I do. Um, but it leavens the whole lump, right? You get the idea. It permeates everything. Um, everything becomes consumed by this. And so Paul is saying, don't, let, don't entertain this. Don't entertain this and think that you can just kind of bring this in safely. It'll impact the whole of your life. That's why he said earlier, it's like, you can't just take circumcision without taking the entire Mosaic law economy with it. It comes as a package, and it's going to begin to define your entire relationship with God, no longer on the basis of grace, but on the basis of <clears throat> your obedience. So, uh, the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> excuse me, one more sip, we'll see if this clears it. Okay, so he's warning them about these false teachers and saying, one, that they are then uh, to be cut off. But then he turns, <coughs> he turns to the false teachers themselves. <coughs> he turns to the false teachers themselves. And he says to them in verse 11, answering various objections made against him. Rather, at the end of verse 10, he says, the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. And then he says, verse 12, in the very startling words, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Thank you. Now, again, you might have to understand the Apostle Paul's last statement here in terms, again, of the various puns that he's been using here of what's being cut off. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here, he's not just trying to be, to get a laugh, or he's not just trying to be provocative. Um, I know a lot of, some, even some contemporary writers will be like, well, see, the Apostle Paul said this, and therefore it justifies using crude language or saying something that's inappropriate or offensive. It doesn't. Um, what the Apostle Paul is getting at here is actually uh, quite um, uh, cunning in, in a good sense and witty. What he's saying here is that these false teachers are saying circumcision is beneficial. Well, why don't you take that to its logic, logical conclusion? If cutting off just the foreskin is beneficial, why not cut off, cut off the whole thing? I mean, that's, that's what the Apostle Paul is uh, saying here. The idea of castration as a religious act. Again, he's not, again, trying to be crude or anything, but he's, trying, he's making the point that there are those, there are religions out there who view castration as a religious thing towards God. And so why don't you just take it 
to its logical conclusion. And that's what the Apostle Paul is getting at here. And, and what he's saying here, and again, hope, hope, hoping that through this, they would see the truth of just seeing how empty and how silly it is to think that these external signs and marks on my body or whatever else I might endure makes me any more righteous before God. That's, that's just the bottom line point that Paul is making here. Right? He's dealing with a very specific case, but he's saying this idea that these external marks could make me more right before God is silly. And therefore, rather than trusting and looking into them, we are instead to look to Jesus Christ. Look to Christ. He is a sufficient Savior. He is one who is righteous and one who has righteousness for uh, his, his people. And so just to come to a conclusion here, right, the Apostle Paul is applying all of that he's been arguing for into this very specific situation. But in the midst of all of that, he again holds up to us the diamond, the jewel, the precious jewel of Christ himself as that sufficient Savior. And he says to the church, he says to you, do not put your trust in the flesh. <clears throat> do not put your trust in the works of your hands. Do not put your trust in, in anything other than Christ himself. And when you do that, when you look to Christ, again, you're not left in a meager, desperate state, but you are given the hope of righteousness and you eagerly wait for it. Though you do not see it, yet you strive for it and long for it and you wait for it as you look to Christ. And therefore, what Paul is saying is that our whole lives then, just as his argument is, has every reference with, to Christ, our whole life, our life is to have every reference towards Christ himself and trusting his gospel. And therefore, the Apostle Paul holds before us Christ crucified for sinners and raised to deliver us from the present evil age. And as we believe in him and trust in him, we are bound to him. His life flowing into ours, our life hidden in him, and our lives then begin to reflect that as he's going to go on to say what then this life looks like as you are not severed from Christ but in communion with him. A life that is then lived out in communion with one another, a life that's lived out as we receive one another on the same basis as God has received us. And as we bear one another's burdens, as we pray for one another, right? All of these things, the Apostle Paul says, flows from this. Flows from our relationship to God. As he has received us, so we receive one another and live with one another. To the glory of Christ and to the glory of God's grace. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the heart and the marrow. Father, we uh, ask that as your word has come to us, uh, that we would uh, recognize, um, even as the Apostle Paul deals with a very specific error that was taking place in Galatia, and yet, Father, that uh, continual problem of trusting in our own works and seeking to be justified by the law. Father, may we see the foolishness of such things, thinking that our works and what we can do could 
earn us the glories of heaven. Father, may we instead look to Christ and rest in him and seek none other than him by faith alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.